Ads, schmads. If you don't want ads, that's okay. Choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And hey, presto, no ads. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How you doing there? It is time for the podcast. John is sitting here. He is in mourning for the passing of Hutch from Starsky and Hutch. Well, all joking aside, Mac, I, I David I, Soul. <laughs> I didn't realize what a, a cultural icon David Soul was because Nor did I. when I heard of the passing, it sparked off big conversation on both my family WhatsApp and my mates WhatsApp. And everyone's talking about, and they all had a story of of, of Starsky and Hutch. Of Starsky and Hutch, but Starsky and Hutch was the coolest, coolest show was, in the seventies. It was the coolest show in the seventies, and I remember. If anybody is of our generation and watched this show in the seventies, you might remember at the start of Starsky and Hutch, they jumped down arse first onto the bonnet of a That's very right, very yeah. car, and John's mother had a Fiat one two seven. And it was parked beside the pillar on John's house on the gates. And John and I used to get in either pillar and jump on the bonnet of the Fiat 127 on our arses, thinking we were Starsky Hutch. She went mental. She went completely but, but the funny thing about David Soul is that he was the coolest, well, himself and Starsky, but Hutch was the coolest. But he went from the coolest to the uncoolest overnight I called over to Mark do you remember this I called over to your house one day and blasting out of every window was don't give up on us baby I do remember the tune John I do remember the tune <laughs> and David Soul's big single and your sister Anne had bought it and she played it back to back literally for hours and both of us were being driven mad <laughs> And you started shouting, turn the bleeding thing off. So she flipped it over to the B-side. Which was? All I want is black, black bean soup. Oh, I always remember that album came out. And Don't Give Up Me Baby was, I think, number one for about 100 years, right? Yeah. For about 10 weeks. And I remember my uncle Frank bought it for an, a niece of his. And the rest of the album was really brutal. Yeah. And so they sat. And well, remember, that was good, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, so, so they thought that was good. And then they read, listened to the rest of the album and they thought it was shocking. And my Uncle Frank brought it back to Golden Discs looking for his money back. <laughs> thought he'd been had. Yeah. The quality of this is very poor. Exactly. Actually, I will, I will say one last thing. One of, last thing in the 1970s. Because we're talking about the 1970s economy. 
David Soule started his career in 1971 and 72 in Magnum Force, Clint Eastwood's Magnum Force. And do you know what his name was? What? His character was? Detective John Davis. Are you serious? Boom. Wow. <laughs> Fame at last. I think I was named after him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let us frame our discussions yes. with the 1970s, right? So basically we want to talk about this year, but big economic trends. So what typically happens when you talk about, you know, when economists are asked what's going on next year, right? Yeah. People are endemically short term. Right, they say, okay, well, interest rates are going up, inflation's going down, yeah. et cetera. But if you look at basically the way the economy works, it works in these very long-term trends, what you call super cycles, right? Right. So you have these very short-term cycles now, mm-hmm. but these super cycles, which are like, what are the issues that are changing the world on a structural basis? And then how will they change our lives, our income, mortgages, job opportunities, all that sort of stuff, wages, all that sort of stuff. And if you look at the 70s and you look now, you're talking about a period of probably about, let's say, a 40-year period. Mm. And I think there is a major super cycle which started around the time, John, of Starsky and Hutch. See what we did there? <laughs> exactly. Genius, that. Genius, right? Huggy bear. Huggy bear, yeah. What's the word in the street, huggy bear? The word in the street is large economic super cycles, okay? Imagine Huggy Bear was an economist. He'd be brilliant. Sitting there. Finger on the pulse. His math finger on the pulse, the whole thing. Anyway, to come back, right? So I think what we should look at is this year as the beginning of another large super cycle, right? Mm. And so... The late 1970s, the early 1980s begins two major trends. Okay, can I just stop you there and just, I mean, this might be a a stupid question, but how does a super cycle begin? Like, is this a planned thing or is this like a culmination of policies and environmental and economic uh, um, stuff? Stuff. (laughs) Stuff that's going on. Stuff that's going on. No, it's typically, you know, on the one hand, economists and policymakers say, oh, yeah, we planned the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But on the other oh, hand, only if it's good, though. Yeah, yeah, only if it's good, exactly. But typically, it is actually, you only see these super cycles after they are emerging. So, for example, if you're looking at, if you're asking people, what's going to happen next year? Mm. They'll say, oh, well, I think... The major thing is inflation is falling quicker than people expected. Interest rates will fall quicker than people expected. Fiscal policy may well be expansionary, all those things. But what I'm saying is look at 2024 as the beginning of a new super cycle. So the old super cycle was one where we were in an era of very low interest rates and very low interest rates that lasted for a long, long time. Mm. So interest rates start falling you take Starsky and Hutch, late 1970s, interest rates start falling just after this. And they fall consistently, consistently until last year. So imagine what that does to the world, yeah. right? That changes the world profoundly. A, because it changes what, remember we talked about the discount rate. So all assets rise when the interest rate falls because the interest rate is the rate at which you discount future earnings, the rate at which you actually value things. Yeah, right? yeah, so that's yeah. the first thing. And then the question is, why did interest rates fall? Why did interest rates fall so rapidly? And why now are they rising? And even if we think, well, you know, interest rates might fall a little bit in the next year or two, the long-term trend of interest rates going towards zero is over. Now, that makes a huge that's a huge thing, right? Mm. And then the why is to do 
largely with China, John. Okay. So, so what happens is in the late 1970s, early 1980s, you basically get the Deng Xiaoping idea that we're going to open. This is when Deng Xiaoping, remember I told you, says, I don't care what colour cat it is. He said, all cats are grey in the dark. And what he meant by that is it doesn't have to be a white cat or a black cat to generate growth. And what he meant was it doesn't have to be really communism or capitalism. Right. As long okay. as we can get a fusion of that, away we go. Okay. Right. So China emerges Again, just after you and I were jumping on the 127 bonnet, <laughs> China emerges. Now, what does that do? That profoundly affects the global labour supply. Now, th- we can't get our head around this, but when China came into the global economy, the labour supply increased by 50%. Think of the global labour supply increased by 50%. Right. That means 50% more workers. Now, what do 50% more workers do is they drive down wages in the rest of the world for the people who used to do the jobs that the Chinese are now doing. Mm. They drive up wages in China, but they drive down wages in the rest of the world. And by driving down wages in the rest of the world, what happens is lots and lots of people lose their jobs in industrial manufacturing. So, for example, people like my father lost his job in industrial manufacturing in the 1980s simply because manufacturing was moving gradually towards China, right? So they were making chemicals and paint and all that sort of stuff that you can make in factories in China much cheaper. Mm. So that pushes down wages here. And when wages are pushed down in the West, particularly in the United States and in Britain, which was more free market economies, what happens is that management say, okay, well, if wages are lower, that means people are cheaper. That means we're going to employ more people and less machines. Mm. So what we see over the course of the last 25 years is an increase in the employment of people at lower wages in the West and a decrease in the employment of capital. Now, what happens then, if you have more people and less machines, what you have is you have a fall in productivity. And a fall in productivity means a permanent fall in wages for industrial workers in the West. Now, these are huge trends, right? Yeah, yeah. And this is what happened in the last 20, 30 years. And of course, around this time as well, then in the UK, Thatcher was shutting down manufacturing. Amplifying the whole thing. Amplifying the whole thing. And switching over to a service-based economy and a finance-based economy. And the problem with services is that services in general are low productivity work. The way I always think of this, think about hairdressers, as you and I think about a lot, John, obviously, Mm, right? Indeed. Okay. So if you think about, if you're making machines, if you're making cars, if you deploy a new machine, you can rapidly increase the production of the cars. You can take people out, but you can't really deploy machinery in hairdressing. Unless, of course, you want one big shears and put 20 people's heads and you cut them all at the same time. Yeah. Right. But think about it. So the service industry is a human industry. The service industry is therefore impervious, really, to changes in productivity and technology. So what happens, the problem with the services, is that if you shift from manufacturing to services as a lot, let's say as Britain and the United States did, the average wage of the person falls. So the average wage of the average worker falls because services do not lend themselves towards productivity increases and machine increases. So basically you have this bizarre thing, and particularly in the United States and in Britain, where unemployment falls and has fallen. I mean, unemployment is very, very low in Britain. Yeah. But wages are also very low. And economic theory would tell you that when unemployment falls, wages should rise. 
Yeah. But the problem is that unemployment, our employment is rising in services where wages are very, very low. And that's what you see in the UK and in the US in particular, right? So all these things are long-term trends. Mm. Can I ask you another question then? Because in around the same time, did that shift to China allow the likes of the states? Because they also changed the colour of their economy and it became more, you know, the rise of the dot-coms and the whole tech industry took off then. Yeah. And if there wasn't a shift to China then, would that very, tech take off? I think it's a really, happen? really good question. I think it's a really, really good question. I think that what happened in tech is, and the relationship with China, I would say goes, and you know I was in California the, the other week, right? Mm. Is that what the opening of China did for tech, I would say more than anything else, was it gave Americans Chinese brain power. So it gave America, if you look at the tech companies, the amount of CEOs that are either Indian or Chinese, mm. the amount of chief technology officers that are Indian or Chinese, yeah. these people moved to the States with unbelievable mathematical skills. I mean, even the Brits, when they first arrived in India, right? Clive of India, when they actually ransacked the place, right? Mm. What they noticed was the Indians were much better at mathematics. Now, why is this? Back in the 17th century. 17th century, right? Yeah. 18th century. Why is this? Because the Indians had been dealing with zero for eight centuries before Europeans. So Europeans, the notion of zero, which is the bedrock of mathematics, right? Because mm, yeah. zero, you can place zero, you can, you can use zero to create big numbers like a million or a billion or whatever. But also zero gives you negative numbers and positive numbers. And the... We're off, we're on a bit of a tangent now here, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but basically what happened was Greek philosophy was afraid of the notion of infinity or the void mm. because Greek philosophy, which is the bedrock of Western philosophy, was all about proof. Mm. And therefore, if you can't prove something, you can't have infinity. And if you can't have infinity, you can't have the void. And zero is the void because it's nothing. Yes. It is the great nothing. Whereas our Hindu friends... We're happy with nothing yeah. because their worldview was to achieve nirvana. You had to embrace nothingness. So philosophically and religiously, they had no aversion to zero, right? So they were using zero in mathematics in the third century. We only started using zero in mathematics in the 15th century, which is an amazing thing. Yeah, yeah, so they yeah. have years and years of mathematical learning in India. But where did they get it? From China. Basically, right. okay. if you want to understand the world, everything comes from China. Paper, gunpowder, clocks, philosophy, everything comes from China and zero came from China. Yeah. And the Indians and the Chinese were miles ahead of us. And that comparative advantage, amazingly, has remained. So if you'd go to now Harvard or Yale or all those MIT, all those big American colleges, the geniuses in mathematics are Indian and Chinese. And those guys were released once the economy opened. And they don't hang around in China. They say... Let's go to California. So I think that's where the, the big comparative advantage for the Americans was actually in the brain power, and particularly the scientific brain power and the technological brain power of the Asians. Okay, so you're saying now, to bring it back, that this super cycle that started... Is coming in, to an end. ...is started in the late 70s, all the way through the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and now it's coming to the end. And that was all the kind of low interest rates, et cetera. Low interest rates. So low interest rates mean capital investment is very cheap. Yeah. So it means you can take big risks on technology, 
right? So that's one part of your Silicon Valley story. But the other part is the brain power coming from the Asians to America, which give the Amer- Americans a comparative advantage because the Americans are much more open to immigration yeah. than Europeans. But they were then. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. So another big part of the shift in the super cycle is the following, right? First is that low interest rates, because of the huge increase in the labor supply coming from China, wages fell everywhere, inflation fell everywhere, and low interest rates were the result of that. Now, the Chinese population is aging. It's Mm. getting much older. So you're not going to get that shift, that huge increase in the labor force. Therefore, interest rates, low interest rates, or interest moving towards zero is a thing of the past. So that's gone, right? Right. Then the second thing you've got to think about is immigration. We now know from Ireland, look, the arson attacks last week in Ireland, right? Immigration is the big deal, right? It's the big economic question. It's the big issue. And for the Americans, who used to be very open to immigration, for the Americans, it's now the hot issue for the election, right? And again, the reason it is, is that immigration has, if you look at the numbers, since 2019, increased dramatically. You know, immigration in the UK is up 45% since 2019. Yeah. It's probably up about 30% here. In Canada, it's up about 20%. So you have this massive shift. Now, a lot of that is Ukrainian refugees, but a lot of that shift is changing the dynamic. Well, it's it, it kind of, even before Ukraine, it was Syria and, yeah. and, and all of that. So with all these weaponization, as it were, of immigration and the, the, the end of this super cycle, the complexion of global politics is changing. You're absolutely and right. And it's becoming more extreme, shifting more to the right in general, but also more to more the More to the right and to the left. I mean, I think that what's always fascinated me looking at these great economic cycles is that they all have the roots of their own defeat within them. Yeah. So what basically happened is you get this massive increase in the return to assets because interest rates are low. Mm. and because labor is cheap, right? So that means that anybody who was wealthy becomes even wealthier. You also get a worldview which is suggesting that governments over the last 25 years should be smaller. And the reason that is, is because there's cheap money all around the place, right? Mm. So you get an intellectual shift. You talked about Thatcher. Thatcher and Reagan started it, but there was a gradual shift all around the West to lower and smaller governments, right? Yeah. That the free market, the private sector can do everything. But implicit in all this, implicit in all this is inequality. And the reason there was a, an American guy, I think I've told you before, called Brandeis, who was a Supreme Court lawyer in the United States and an advisor to Roosevelt. And he said something very interesting. He said, you can have inequality and you can have democracy, but you can't have them together. Right. And his point was that Inequality, and that is the fruits of the last, let's say, 25, 30 years super cycle, right? Mm. Since a little bit before Starsky and Hutch, right? <laughs> Part of the success of that was tolerance of economic inequality. That what we got was the people who owned assets got richer, the people who depended on wages got relatively poorer. Mm. Not in this country. This country has been a bit of an outlier, right? But all over the Western world. Eventually, something has to give. And what's giving right now is that inequality is being played out on the streets over immigration. So if you look at, again, it's a very, very, immigration is a very interesting phenomenon because 
immigration affects different classes differently. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So working class people compete with immigrants in the jobs market, in the housing market, in the market for schools, in the market for health. Mm. So what you get is that naturally they're feeling a little bit more threatened at a time when their wages are already falling relative mm. to everybody else. Yeah. So middle class and particularly upper middle class people experience immigration completely differently. They have better delivery drivers. They have more <laughs> waiters. Yeah. Think about it. You know, yeah. if you consume services, remember we talked about services? Yeah. Immigration is great for you because it reduces the price of services, right? Of of, of hairdressing, of, of, of restaurants. Mm -hmm. But if you're working in services, immigration threatens you. So you've got this natural tension at the soul of all Western societies. Yeah. And, you know, I am pro-immigrant. I think people should be given a chance. I think the economy grows and society is better. However, I can also understand people feeling threatened by it. And what happens over time is that that becomes... Rather than inequality be saying, well, why don't we actually take money back from the wealthy and give it to the poorer, change the tax system? It's easier to say, see that brown fella there or that black fella there or that black woman or that brown woman? They're the problem. You yeah. know? So it's the scapegoating. So what we are now, if you look at all our elections, every single election this year, all around the world, with the exception, I think, of the emerging markets, the issue of immigration will be huge. But it's not really only a backlash about culture and identity. It's also wrapped up in all this economic stuff we're talking about. And that, I think, is the, is the major battle. And that's why this year is distinct from other years. Because we have, as you mentioned last week, I think 46 or 50% of the world voting. Yeah. And if you think all Europeans are going to vote in the European election in June, God knows what is going to throw up there. But I would say last time out, the, it's amazing, the European elections threw up a massive victory for the Greens, yeah. right? And the Greens will be slaughtered this time around. Yeah. And yeah. they throw up a massive victory for the right wing. Yeah. Right? And that's the way it goes. But we think the European election is kind of a little bit of a, a Mickey Mouse election because there's no real legitimate power, but it's a bellwether as to where the country's going. Yeah. So if you look at the environmental movement five years ago, it was really on its uppers. There was new green technology. Everyone was talking about Greta Thunberg, blah, 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 right? That's all gone. Nobody's talking about that mm. anymore. As a political issue, yes, they are, but it's not, not the live yeah, yeah, issue. Yeah. It's not the yeah. really live issue. What it is now is immigration. And that, what you're hearing from the street is the end of the super cycle. And we move on to something new. So if, if now is the end of the super cycle and, and 2024 in particular, what's the next cycle? Well, but before you answer that, let's have a little bit of this first. Don't give up on me, baby. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. So, Huggy Bear, the Huggy Bear of economics. <laughs> we were talking about the end of this 40-year-ish super, super cycle. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of coming to a crashing end in around Well, now. in the elections, what we're seeing is the issues are different from the issues that were even five years ago. So what's next? What's the next big super cycle? Well, the, the what's good, going to kick that off? The good news is, the good news oh, is. We love a bit of good news, Good news, man. the good news is, John. That. I'm not great at it. I'm not great at it. It's, not, it's uncharacteristic. <laughs> I know, I know. But the good news is that what we're looking at is a period where wages begin to rise mm. in the West, mm. where because the end of low interest rates, it means that what we've had is a situation where right now unemployment is very, very low all around the West. Eventually, this will transpire into increases in wages. But we have to deal with inflation first, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying is inflation will remain reasonably high relative to the last while. Okay. Inflation is not going back to zero or 1%. It's yeah. just not going to happen, right? Okay. So I think we're going to see a yearning, I'm not sure if it's going to be delivered, for higher wages. For remember, I was talking about the pendulum swing very Marxist idea between capital and labour. Yeah. Moves back towards labour, right? I think we're going to see more agitation for wealth taxes, for taxes to claw back those inequalities that resulted from yeah. the last 40-odd years. So, but on immigration, I think we're going to see quite significant shifts on the openness of societies in the West. I think that basically... What do you mean? Well, I think we're going to see... We're going to see certainly more immigration controls, certainly yeah. tighter. You know, not something I su support, but the great thing about democracy is it's working if you're losing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like you know that democracy works if your opinion loses, because it means that actually a diversity of opinion is, is, is being embraced. So what you're saying then is, is that there's going to be much tighter border controls. I think so. Which will then also have a big impact and negative impact on Europe and the European Union as an entity and how it actually works in the Schengen and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I think that you cannot ignore what's coming up from the populace, right? Mm. If people are saying, this is a big issue, you can change the dynamic, you can argue for it, but eventually politics, you know, in the old days, politics led and the people followed. Now, because what we spoke about last week, the diffusion of media and the diffusion of the message. Yeah. In fact, politics has been led by public opinion. And public opinion is shifting on the issue of immigration. And if you want to put your head in the sand and say this is not happening, that's fine. But that, I think, is irresponsible. I think what you've got to do is say, look, immigrants are not the problem here. The problem is wealth inequality. In this country, that means building more houses. Mm. But you've got to be able to explain 
to the people that what they're feeling is a misunderstanding of what's going on or what they're feeling is right. So you've got to actually move with them, not necessarily always move against them. And I think yeah. that's what we're going to find is that countries, not like our, I mean, Ireland is not only not full, uh, Ireland is completely underpopulated. Look what's happening in France. You've got Le Pen. Mm. Look what's happening in Britain. The Tories and Labour are very anti-immigration now. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, Both yeah. of them, right? Look what's happening. Wilders won in Netherlands. Yeah. Right? Look what's happening AFD, in, uh, yeah, yeah, the in Germany. Yeah, the alternative for Deutschland, Maloney in Italy. These are real phenomena. Yeah. You know, the, the, the true Finns, the Swedish Democrats, these are true phenomena. And these are functions of the shift in this massive super cycle. And we can't really ignore it. So when you talk about that, can I just take it back a second? Because you talk about labour and a demand for higher wages. That would indicate there's going to be a much stronger labour movement, you know, the, the reforming yeah. and strengthening of yeah, the unions. So. And so therefore, a lot more kind of strikes and Or maybe protests. not strikes, maybe not strikes. Maybe, maybe wage increases will be delivered because profits are very high. And then the other part that you were saying is, is the, uh, you know, to use that old banking term from a few years back, a correction. A correction, exactly. No, but if there Which is means this, you lose your arse. Yeah, <laughs> but but if there is this inequality, great yeah, inequality, there will be a, a correction, which... Which is a good thing. Which is a good thing, but how that correction happens well, could actually equal a lot of civil unrest. Well, it could, it could, but let's, let's just think, you know, in this great super cycle, another thing that happened is labour unions stopped talking about the rights of their members mm. and began to adopt sort of internationalist ideas. Uh, one of the great problems with the left is it doesn't really know if it's a sort of a woke student movement or an actual old-fashioned trade union yeah. looking after its members. And the interesting thing is sometimes the woke student movement and the old-fashioned trade unions are in conflict on these issues. Yeah. Yeah, and I yeah. think what you're going to see is the left moving back towards mainly bread and butter issues for their own people, mm. right? That's what I think is going to happen. And that's going to be a big change in, 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 in politics because, you know, in effect, if you look at the big election for next year, it's Trump versus Biden. Yeah. I might, might leave you with one wild card thought. Oh, go on. Right? So the, so the big problem for the American left is that the American Democratic Party abandoned working class people and starts to involve itself in the concerns of academia, the intelligentsia. This is the whole meritocracy thing. All this idea that they started getting into bed with, you know, a combination, a triumvirate of Silicon Valley, Wall Street and Hollywood. Yeah. That's what the Democrats... So if you look at the Democratic Party, their big donors are, you know, big actors and tech companies yeah. and, and massive, massive investment banks. Yeah. Now, if you're in New Jersey, if you're if you're watching Tony Soprano, if you're an Italian American in New Jersey, by the right, way, Mac has been obsessed with the Sopranos. Right, no, but, but if if, yeah, I have, I have. I, but if you're one of those people, this is not your world. Yeah. This is yeah. not your world, right? Your world is Hoffa, it's blue collars, it's trade unions, it's all that sort of stuff. So the Democratic Party has to go back to that, and in so doing, has to identify itself with its own seed constituency, mm. which is the working man and woman in the United States. Now, I have a wild card that they might do this, right? Go on. At the moment, the Democrats are stuck with Joe Biden, right? Yeah. They kind of know that this is a highly risky strategy. Yeah. 
because he might implode. And he's too old. And, and he's all too that old yeah, and all that yeah. sort of stuff, right? But they're kind of stuck with him because they, they know that it, name recognition and all that sort of stuff goes a long, long way. But they need to try and grab the middle ground of Republicans who really don't like Trump. Yeah. But they kind of hold their nose. Now, Dick Cheney's daughter, Liz Cheney. Yes. Could you imagine, this is a wild card I have for you, if rather than Kamala Harris on the card as vice president, the Democrats go for a Biden-Cheney card. Wow. Right? Wow, that's an interesting one. And it's a really, because what it would do... It, how likely is that? I'm just thinking, if, you're, if I'm sitting, if I'm a Democratic strategist, right? Yeah. I'm thinking... The Trump juggernaut is what it is, right? Yeah. It's smashing through the polls, right? There are a whole load of what I would call queasy Republicans. Yeah. Old school Republicans who believe in the United States, in patriotism, in the armed forces, all that sort of stuff. Mm. The John McCain Republicans. Remember yeah. him, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, big part of the, of the Republican Party, right? But they can't bring themselves to vote Democrat. They yeah, really yeah. can't because it's not in their DNA. Crossing the aisle is All not stuff, in their right? DNA. Okay, yeah. but Liz Cheney is Republican aristocracy. She's the daughter of Dick Cheney. Her grandparents were Republican. They're very close to the Bushes. These are the mm. real blue-blooded deal. They weren't particularly nice people. Doesn't matter. Mm. Doesn't matter. My point is Trump is not a particularly nice person. <laughs> well, right? no, he's not. Okay, right? And now you're right about You're right about the Cheneys. But what I'm saying is if you listen to her, she is the centre-right opposition to Trump. And she represents an old lineage of Republican thinking. And she could, if animated in the right way, bring together a whole load of Republicans who would find Biden that bit more tolerable because she is at the helm. Mm. So they're voting for a bipartisan. The key thing in America is it's so feckin' partisan. Yeah, that if yeah. you're in one crowd and you, the other crowd hates you, Imagine this idea, you create a bipartisan coalition in this election and you move towards changing the way America thinks about itself and therefore you isolate the very, very extremes on particularly the right with Trump and you drive a coach and horses up the middle. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. With the Biden-Cheney ticket. It's a wild card, John. It sure is. I will leave you with that thought. I'm going to go down to Paddy Power and put a bet on that. <laughs> we'll talk to you next week. 